Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Cyrus, if I could tell you one thing about my brother, it would be this. Two days after his 19th birthday, he killed our parents and our twin sisters because he heard voices in his head. As defining events go, nothing else comes close for Elias or for me. I've often tried to imagine what went through his mind on that warm autumn evening when the people began closing their curtains for the coming night and the streetlights began to glow. What did the voices say? What words could have made him do what he did? I've tortured myself with the what-ifs and maybes. What if I hadn't stopped to buy hot chips with vinegar on my way home from football practice? What if I hadn't paused outside Elsa Piper's house, hoping to glimpse her in the garden or coming home from her dance classes? What if I had pedaled faster and arrived home sooner? Could I have stopped him or would I be dead too? I am the boy who survived. The one who hid in the garden shed crouched among the tools, smelling the kerosene and paint and grass clippings, while sirens echoed through the streets of Nottingham. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Michael Robotham is one of Australia's best-selling and most awarded writers of crime fiction. Along with five standalone works, Michael has written nine books in the Joe O'Loughlin series. But today I'm talking to Michael Robotham about the third book in the Cyrus Haven series of psychological thrillers, Lying Beside You. Michael, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. Parallel to the shocking crimes and thickening plots in your Cyrus Haven series, there are developing backstories about relationships, particularly those between Cyrus and Evie Cormack, which began in Good Girl, Bad Girl. It would seem that the relationships are as important to you as the crime and the plot. A lot of people think that crime novels are, are plot-driven devices and, and it's all about the plot. But as I've done many times, ask someone for their favourite crime novel and then you say, what's the plot? And they'll have forgotten the plot ages ago. It's the characters they'll tell you about. You know, it's the characters that bring you back to the same writers again and again. It's the characters that stay with you. While you definitely need a story, you need a plot to go with it, but I, I think the characters um, drive that along. And even the most... I mean, it's true, all plots have been done at some point. Very rarely do you come up with something that's completely unique and never been written about before. But it's the characters that you can make unique and it's the characters that bring readers back. And how do these particular relationships feed or fuel the crime in lying beside you? I think it's a a situation of uh, creating characters that I love, uh, like Cyrus Haven and Evie Cormack, and then putting them under pressure and seeing how they react. And, and I don't plot the books in advance, so I, I actually don't know how the crime will unfold. I mean, with Lying Beside You, I had no idea who the villain was going to be for a long, long while when I was writing the book. And, uh, but all I was doing is, you know, it sounds a bit, it, it sounds very blasé to say it, but you create characters you love and then you do horrible things to them and put them in terribly dangerous situations and you, and you see how they will react. And... Um, and how they bounce off each other. It's the nature of all storytelling. All storytelling is about conflict, you know, someone wanting something and something standing in their way, and that's the hurdle they must overcome. Cyrus himself is always seems to be walking this tightrope, whether it's uh, a tightrope 
when dealing with his relationships or a tightrope when he's dealing with the police. But he's continually faced with this challenge of delving into and analysing the contents of other people's minds. That's true. And I guess that's my, my great fascination is with, you know, I write psychological thrillers. I, I feature psychologists in so many of my books. And I think it stems from the fact that in a former career, you know, after being a journalist, I was a ghostwriter. And one of the people that I ghostwrote for was a brilliant forensic psychologist or clinical psychologist in the UK who was a pioneer of offender profiling, a man called Paul Britton, who, who, who helped the police solve you know, celebrated cases like Fred and Rosemary West, The House of Horrors, and Jane, The Disappearance and Murder of Jamie Bulger in Liverpool. And it was Paul that gave me such an incredible insight into not just people having sort of, you know, being three-dimensional. I mean, we are, so we are multi, multi-dimensional and we all have secrets and we all, you know, that we hide from ourselves as much as anyone else. And, and we are all the product of, of, of our environment and our upbringing and our genetics. And all of that comes into play, I think, in, in the characters that I write, trying to make them live and breathe on the page. And one of the ones that he's dealing with most acutely is Evie, Evie Cormack herself, and they have a history which goes back to good girl, bad girl, and then when she was good. And here we're entering a new phase of this relationship. Evie is becoming ever more involved in Cyrus's life and his career, and she's turned out to be something of a lie detector. I don't know how long... I can carry Evie on for as a character because, I mean, honestly, if you, you create a character who can tell when someone's lying and then you're on track to write the shortest crime novel in history. I mean, if I, if I hadn't made Evie so young and damaged and such a pathological liar, if I'd made her, for example, just a detective, she could have solved any crime within the first five minutes by putting all the suspects in a room and just simply asking them, did you do it? Um, but... Um, I guess, you know, she works because she is so vulnerable and she is so damaged and she suffered such abuse and she lies so pathologically. But, I mean, I think they're drawn together because Cyrus can see that Evie's skill of being able to tell when someone's lying is not a gift, it is a curse. She's destined to go through her life never having a friend, a true friend or a, a, or a true relationship because we all lie to people we love with the best possible intentions, you know. And three little words like I love you become very, very damaging when you know that they're not sincere. So Evie will always struggle. And I think Evie sees in Cyrus, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe this is the first man she's ever truly been able to trust, you know, because men have done terrible things to her. Um, but perhaps she's found someone that may even be more damaged than she is and that together they might be able to save each other. Evie. I'm getting quite good at playing a blind girl, which saves me money on bus fares, and I get to watch people without them knowing. I used to be able to pass as 12 and pay a child's fare, but those days have slipped by. Cyrus would be furious if he knew about my blind girl routine. But it's not as though I'm taking a seat from a real disabled person or mugging a coffin dodger. I'm taking advantage of a loophole, that's all. The bus sets off. A few stops later, a young guy gets on, who was my age, maybe younger. He's fit-looking with a pale, malnourished sort of way, wearing baggy clothes and a bomber jacket. I'm staring straight at him. He smiles. I don't smile back. He raises his hand and moves it back and forth. I ignore him. Nice dog, he says. Thank you. I've always wanted to ask a blind person how they tell if someone is attractive or not. I read their faces with my fingers. You can do that. 
Yeah. Do you want to read mine? No. What do you miss most, you know? Is it watching TV or going to the movies or seeing a sunrise? Watching porn, I say. He hiccups the word and starts stammering, blushing. It's cute. I'm shitting you, okay? He looks relieved, although a little disappointed. This is my stop. How can you tell? My dog tells me. How? She lifted her head. I reach for the signal button. The boy does it for me. Our hands touch. I pull mine away as though bitten. Poppy stands with me. The boy moves his legs to give us more room. As I pass him, I lean a little closer. Nice jacket, I whisper. She's a person who has trouble with the truth, and yet she's able to spot when somebody's lying. I love that about her. I love the idea that if she, if she doesn't know the answer to something, she'll just make it up. If she doesn't know someone's backstory, she'll just make up a backstory for them, which in a sense means that when she does finally say to someone, look, I know someone is lying, you know, Cyrus understands it, that you've got to trust Evie because Evie knows these things. But other people just say, why would we believe her? I mean, she's, <laughs> she can't lie straight in bed, you know, and... Uh, and it's the great sort of conundrum of her. But by the same token, you know, Cyrus also can't alert people to Evie's skill because he's terrified that people will want to experiment on her or, or you know, it's a skill that, like hers, could be seriously abused by, by the good guys and the bad guys. So um, Cyrus has to keep it secret. And as if that wasn't complicated enough for Cyrus, you bring in Elias Haven, who we know, murdered his family some 20-odd years ago. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wanted to... I mean, was, this was a difficult sort of storyline to bring in I, because normally, as you know, we're, we're fiction writers and, and we have to imagine what it's like, but it's so beyond my experience. As a journalist, most things I write about I've either experienced or I've researched, but the idea of what it must be like to have a brother who does such a horrendous thing to kill your family... And then 20 years on, you know, he applies to get out of the you know, secure psychiatric hospital. And do you welcome him back? I mean, do you forgive him? I mean, do you... And Cyrus, being a psychologist, you know, I think Cyrus says he, he should be able to forgive the cynic because he understands it's mental illness. You know, Elias did not know what he was doing. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, but still, I don't know whether I could forgive. You know, I don't know whether I could, but I wanted to explore it. It's certainly a big issue in the book. I want to turn to the idea of plot. You say that uh, characters are the central thing, and they certainly are here, but your plots always seem to advance with this real surety, which is quite striking considering the chaotic lives of your characters. Do you always know where you're going when you're writing? No, never. I never know. I, I write in such a way, if, if at any point in the story I can see five different ways, four or five different ways, the next chapter could go this way or that way, I'm comfortable with that because um, I can go one way and if it doesn't work, I can backtrack and I can try another angle. And each time I'm navigating towards an ending, which I don't know what the ending is yet, but I'm heading in the right direction. I get very nervous when this story can only go one direction because if that's off a cliff, or into a dead end, then I have to rip and throw tens of thousands of words away. I mean, so in this book, I didn't know until about two thirds of the way through, you know, what the motivation would be of the of the man that was kidnapping women in the in the story, uh, uh, and and that sort of all occurred to me during the writing process, you know, and and, I, and in a sense, it's like writing without a net. You hope 
when you're swinging through the air and you let go and you tumble through the air that there's something swinging toward you can grab hold of because otherwise it's going to hurt when you land. Well, your plots are anything but predictable. One of the things that your book traverses is this idea of a setup, the framing of an individual for crime they didn't commit. But uh, can I suggest in the process of your writing, you're actually also setting up the reader, sending them them off into various different channels. Yeah, I am. It's it's. Um, I don't often teach writing classes, but when I do, one of the things I talk about to people is that what I do when I'm writing is I plant, I plant landmines. Okay, and oftentimes. I mean, the reader knows. They probably think, "Oh, I bet you that's a clove." You know, I've saw him. I saw him plant that, and he's that is a clove. You know, and I'm going to remember that. But then I distract them with all these other clothes and all this other stuff. And then later on in the book, they'll step on that landmine and it'll blow their leg off. And they'll go, "Oh, I saw him plant that. I saw him do that. Why didn't I see that?" You know, and I think that's it's sort of part. Part is it's that idea of sleight of hand. It's that magician's trick of making the reader look look at one hand while the other hand is doing something, you know. And uh, but readers are very sophisticated. I mean, they have now read so many books and seen so many crime shows on TV and movies. It's very difficult to fool the reader, you know. Uh, you have to work harder and harder to get those twists to land. You actually introduce a whole swathe of characters that uh, do exactly that. Uh, Mitchell Coates, this young fellow who's possibly been framed for one of these crimes, and then also Alex or Anders or Andrew Foley, depending on the name he chooses to take. But so there's all these sort of wild cards in there, but then, of course, there's the very stolid Detective Lenny or Lenore Parvel, for example. It's as if you place them there to offset the turmoil. They seem to be the voice of reason, though not in every case, and here I'm thinking of DCI Gary Hoyle. And here we have quite an unlikable character. Yeah, I think that's, it's always, I guess, again, this is like the idea I mentioned earlier of conflict. Um, you know, the idea that into any investigation, I mean, Cyrus Haven's an outsider. I mean, he, even though he's employed by the police as a profiler, he's not one of them, you know. And there are some detectives that appreciate, and I, I know this from experience, from having written books with psychologists that work with the police that, some police embrace the idea of, of psychological profiling. Other people think it's sort of voodoo and it's it's black magic and they think that old-fashioned policing works best. Lenny Parvel, I mean, she is sort of Cyrus's mentor. I mean, uh, she was a young policewoman who discovered Cyrus when his family were, were murdered when Cyrus was only 13. She rescued him. So they've known each other for a long while. She is the voice of reason. But there's always, I tend to put a policeman in there who perhaps... Cyrus sort of butts up against that doesn't quite think Cyrus is this genius or wonder boy or that his advice should be followed um, because that that conflict adds to the tension of the investigation. In the course of the three books, and there's some wonderful pacing in the three books from the very first into this one, lying beside you, I wonder if you, if you in a sense, project the future of your characters. Perhaps you're maybe throwing a lance into the future with the idea of you know, retrieving it in some way at some time in the future. No, I guess, but I mean, I, I think that's the nature of novel writing itself. I mean, it's an act of faith when you write a novel because you're you're predicting there'll be a future for it to be published in. The whole idea that you finish the book and it's a year before it's published, and that you're sort of you're you're sort of burying a time capsule really, and hoping someone will dig it up um, later. But I do know when I wrote Good Girl, Bad Girl, and I, I introduced Cyrus and Evie. 
in a perfect world, I would have written the second novel when she was good before the first novel uh, was published. But in a sense, I planted clues in that first novel and I had to live with them in the second novel. Everything I've written in those early novels, I have to go back and say, no, I can't, like, I've got to do it this way because I've put clues in there. I put clues in there as to Evie's real identity and I can't change that. Um, and so you are casting forward, but, it, you know, I wish a better writer than me perhaps or a planner or a plotter other than a pantser would have mapped out this big story arc of all these characters and how they were going to go forward in the books that they've been. Each book I finished thinking that might be the last one with these two. And so I I have to then go back and um, look at what I've written in the past and decide, okay, that's my that's where I start from. I can't veer away from that. I have to keep those facts the same. Do you find inspiration from inside your characters or from something external? Most of the books have been seated in a real-life event. You know, in terms of a, a possible plot you know, device, a what-if moment, you know, I know with something like Life or Death, it was a two-paragraph story about a man escaping from prison on the day before he was due to be released, having served, you know, two life sentences. He escapes the day before he's due to be released. And I remember that's a true story. I remember cutting that paragraph out of the Sydney Morning Herald and thinking, why would someone do that? And that just became the seed of an idea and, and, and it led to life or death. So, but it's normally, you know, from something out of my journalistic background, it'll be, or something I've read, I'm still a news junkie, something I read in the papers. Um, I mean, the seed for this book, I can't, I can't tell you really because it gives too much of the plot away, but, you know, it, it was, it was a, a medical mistake, basically that I read about, and, and that was the seed of, of this book. I'm going to finish with a question about heroes, what you read and literary heroes. I expect that every author has literary heroes of some kind, but to my way of thinking, those literary heroes might change over time. Have yours remained true? Have you acquired new ones? and Or does hero status no longer apply? Oh, no, definitely applies. I mean, I, the one I talk most about is Ray Bradbury, Many people heard the story how I wrote him a letter when I was 12 years old and he wrote back to me and he sent the three books that weren't available in Australia, bring an American sort of short story writer and obviously very famous for Fahrenheit 451. And, and I mean, that sort of generosity inspired me to want to be a writer. So Ray Bradby will always be, he's now dead, but will always be one of my great literary heroes. Um, I, I have this theory about writing is that I mean, it's not the truly, truly, truly great writers that inspire me to write because when I read the truly great writers um, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, or whatever, I want to weep because I think I'm never going to be that good, you know, and, and they just make me want to give up. It's actually the writers who I read and they're, and they're good, but I go, but you know, that book could have been so much better if they had just done this. Or when I start thinking, I could have made that book better. You know, they're the books that inspire me to want to be a writer rather than the books that are so perfect I couldn't possibly improve upon or compete with or match and they, they just depress me. <laughs> it sounds like some kind of writer's curse. <laughs> it feels a little bit like It's like I'm, I'm like a kid that wants to take an alarm clock and dismantle it, you know, but a perfect novel is something that you can't even begin to think how you could take it apart, let alone put it back together again. It's so perfectly, you can't put your fingers in there and sort of break it apart to see how it's made. It's just perfect.
Michael Robotham, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. I've been talking to Michael Robotham about the third book in the Cyrus Haven series, Lying Beside You. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.